Hello and welcome to Hi Low with Amrata. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. And for those of us who are just joining for the first time, let me just give you a quick rundown of how things work around here. Every Tuesday and Thursday, I put out new episodes of High Low with Imrata. On Tuesdays, I do a feature-length interview with culturally relevant guests, most recently journalist and author Taylor Lorenz, who covers online culture. Love that episode. And singer-dancer-actress Tanache, who is also amazing, such a sweetheart. On Thursdays, we do Emrata Asks, where I do a deep dive into a topic that's been on my mind. It could be related to current events, a recent interview, or just something I was curious to explore. Every Thursday, we also drop an exclusive subscriber-only talkback episode where I answer your questions and respond to your comments. I love that episode. It's so nice to hear from all of you. We play your voice notes. If you want to hear what you're missing, use the free trial feature on Apple Podcasts to check out that episode. All right. So if you've been keeping up with any news over the summer, you know that we're in something of a pivotal time for the labor movement, which is exciting because it's particularly related to my industry. We're two months into the SAG strike, which began on July 14th this summer. And we're four and a half months into the WGA strike, which began on May 2nd. And while for a long time it seemed like the AMPTP, the movie studios, have no interest in budging, There have been some really positive signs lately that they're starting to become more willing to come to the table, considering all of the bad PR generated and just online the discourse of very anti-Netflix, Amazon, etc. And it's funny because on some level, it seems like it'd actually just be cheaper for the studios to just give in. I um, saw a headline just last week that Warner Brothers Discovery takes one quarter loss larger than entire industry cost of WGA proposal. So... They're definitely worried about the macro of what these changes will mean to their business. But in the short term, they're learning losing a hell of a lot of money. So I thought it was a good time to check in with one of the writers on the front lines of these protests. I wanted to ask about how the media has been covering the strikes, how morale is amongst the rank and file members of the guild, and just a general kind of picket line vibe check. So we're talking to writer and comedian Josh Gondelman. His credits include writing for award-winning shows like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. He was also the head writer for Showtime's Jesus and Marrow, but his work isn't just seen on the stage and screen. He's also a council member for the WGA East and one of the WGA's East Coast strike captains. We'll be right back after this break. Stay tuned for more High Low with Emrata. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. Hi, Josh. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So we're 132 days into the writer's strike and counting as of this record. What's the current morale like amongst you and your writer peers roughly four and a half months in? Oh, that's such a great question. I feel like there it has been a really 
frustrating summer in some ways with the studio's just complete refusal to, it feels like, bargain in good faith at all. But like the member solidarity has been really incredible. People out on the picket lines, the solidarity with SAG-AFTRA has been really incredible since they've been on strike, which has been about 60 days at this point. Um, and so like there's a lot of frustration, but I feel like the, uh, the overwhelming majority of it is pointed at the studios like, hey, come on. Like, let's get this done. Like, what are you waiting for? And I think there's this understanding that it is the greed on that side that is, you know, holding the process up. And, and it's not just us, you know. I think the morale is really buoyed by the support we're getting from unions like flight attendants. And we've had uh, these big AFL-CIO days of solidarity with laborers and teachers and ironworkers and musicians. And that stuff is all so thrilling and encouraging because it really reminds us that we're part of this big movement and it's not just us against studios it's like working people against corporate interests do you feel like the general public has become more aware or educated around the various labor issues through the visibility of these particular strikes i hope so i mean i think overall there there's a real swelling of the labor movement right and the importance of organizing and unionizing. And I think that is like a really encouraging thing nationwide to see this uptick. And, and I've certainly learned a lot from this process. I didn't come in knowing all that I know now. And it's been a real lesson. I've learned so much about internal organizing and the the way these negotiations happen. And, and, I, and I hope that it's getting a little bit more uh, you know, filtering out into the public a little bit more too. I think part of it is there's some real big name people like out on the front lines of this. And so it, it gets people's ears perked up and paying attention. I hope it helps people be attuned to like the UPS Teamsters, the 350,000 UPS Teamsters that authorized a strike and then got their contract before they had to go out. And the, the UAW workers who at the time of this recording, I believe have also authorized a strike and it's 150,000 auto workers. And so like th this stuff is happening and it's it's a big story even beyond you know the writers and the performers. I saw this clip um that was going around from Bill Maher who was claiming that the writers have some kooky demands. Do you have any idea what he was referring to? You know, I don't spend a lot of time trying to get inside Bill Maher's head. It doesn't seem like an especially pleasant place to be, but if you want to talk about whose demands are kooky, I think it's so easy to to turn that around and go like, well, the studios are saying they want to use actors' likenesses in perpetuity, right? For for the fee of one day of work is is one of their reported demands. Um, they they're telling writers that that they want to leave all uses of AI on the table and not scale anything, that ambition or that potential back at all in a way that protects jobs in writer's rooms. So to me, that feels like the like, quote unquote, kooky ask, right? And again, I think it's so notable that it's that's one person who's kind of spoken out again of, of this genre of hosts, late night hosts, especially, there's one person that's gone like, okay, writers, let's get me, me, me. And, and then there's, you know, the, the five other full-time late night hosts are doing a podcast to pay their staffs during the strike because they realize this is an important moment for the unions and that it impacts a lot more people other than the writers. And I think we understand that too. And SAG-AFTRA understands that as well. It affects our membership in a really real way to be out of work for so long. And there's so many people who are so important to the industry and who are affected by this. And we don't take that lightly either. And I think like it's a little 
you know, flippant of a guy who's been rich since the 90s to say like, yeah, it's ridiculous for people to demand fair pay for their work. So what are some of the demands, just put simply? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's like kind of the big one, right? And so a lot of it is just the way that the move from linear broadcast, uh, you know, television broadcast and theatrical films to streaming has changed the way compensation works. So when movies would do well in theaters, when TV shows would be rerun and be syndicated, writers would get paid again because the studios are getting paid again. They're raking in more money from that reuse. That's a huge thing across the board that we've got to bring those rates up, especially for, I know it's really impacted actors' ability to make their year. It's really impacted late-night comedy variety writers, especially. Residuals are basically zero dollars on streaming platforms for, for that kind of writing. It used to be you'd get a writer's room, you'd break the season, right? You'd decide the arc of the season, what happens in each episode. The writers would go off on their script, and it would be 20-something episodes a season, maybe 13 episodes a season, and it was like your year of employment, and you were good. Now that seasons are shorter, right? Writers are going gig to gig, people's ability to like earn into their health care and to pay into the health and pension funds to keep that healthy for the future generations. And then for film, right? There's th- This is how intransigent the studios have been. There's stuff like film writers on contract want to be paid weekly. They want their rate paid out weekly over the term they're working on a script. So that way they don't get like a, a check up front and then have to wait for the rest of their payment till they deliver. So that way they can, you know, make money on a weekly basis like working people are used to across America and, and they can pay their bills week to week, month to month. And the studio said no. And that's something that doesn't cost money. You know what I mean? It's not just that they don't want to pay money. What we're asking for is about 2% of their profits, not revenue, profits. That's what the writers are asking for, for all the work we do. And they're not only saying no to those bumps, but they're saying no to the things that are not costly for them because they just don't want to give, they don't want to cede any power to the workforce. There's been a lot of conversations around AI. Can you talk to me about some of the more specific proposals? Like what's the ask around AI? I think that like the unfettered use of AI to write and to create, you know, to duplicate the images of performers and their voices in perpetuity or, or even to like any kind of unconstrained extent is really dire. And it's, I, I think like on one hand, it is people not being compensated fairly for their likeness and the use of their work. I think it's bad for art, which I know is not like a moving statement at the bargaining table, you know, to be like, art will get worse. And it's like, these people don't give a shit about art. They don't even, like, forget art, right? They don't give a shit about entertainment being good. They want to cram as low quality a product down people's throats into their eyes, ears, and brains as they possibly can, because that's how they will make the most money. And they don't they don't care if people like it or not. They just care that it is and that people will be cornered into consuming it. I think like a real canary in the coal mine for this is the way a lot of you know digital media companies, online media companies have started putting out AI posts that are just like riddled with errors that are – there's no value add because there's no human insight and there's not even factual accuracy. And they're like, yeah, we'll publish these because we don't give a shit if it's good as long as it is. And that I think is like a real – peek into the CEO mindset of like, if we can squeeze an extra few cents out of this, we don't care how much people hate it, employees or audiences. 
One thing we take pride in here and think is really important at Hilo is being radically transparent around finances. I think there are definitely some folks out there that think just because you sell a screenplay or you spend a season or two writing for a major show that it's like hitting the lottery. What's the reality when it comes to the economics of the industry? Can you peel back the curtain for us if you don't mind? Totally. I think it's like 86% of SAG-AFTRA members don't make enough money as performers to earn into the health insurance. And so, and that threshold is, I think, like less than 30 grand, maybe. And so that's that's what we're talking about on that side. And then for writers, the weekly rates do seem enticing when you see it. But if you do a four to eight week room at a minimum, right? An early career writer, you might be making for, for an eight week room. I, I may be a little bit off on the numbers, but ballpark, something like forty to fifty thousand dollars, which is like that's not nothing for that much time spent, but then you might go without a gig for a year, right? So that is the kind of thing that's that's happening now where people are jumping from gig to gig or jumping without a gig and they're they're getting into this position where, you know, if you don't get that next gig within the right window, you you go a quarter your health insurance lapses. And I think like that is not just an industry problem, that's an America problem that I think people across the country can relate to, right? Is that if you have a little bit of savings, that can get knocked out really quickly by some kind of not even health emergency, just health condition. So I think like it really does feel, you know, from the outside, you go, oh, I see these people. You're seeing Tom Cruise in movies. You're seeing who are people starring in TV shows, you know, that are long running um, or even creating TV shows that are long running. You see maybe a, um, like a high profile showrunner, like a David Simon. You go, oh, he created The Wire. He must be set for life. And you go, yeah, but that's not, you know, I'm sure I, I don't mean to like throw David under the bus, but because I, I think he would probably say the same thing. It's like he has done well in his career and it's because of the union protections that have allowed that. And just because there are a few people who have really thrived doesn't – we're trying to take care of everybody. We're trying to take care of the people who are making minimum on their first gig and making sure that they don't then get left out in the cold and like fall out of the industry because they have to go back to – the job they were doing before they broke in and, and and just can't keep prodding and can't keep struggling forward. Now, when we talk about a writer or an actor making something like 50 grand, they don't just get to pocket that money, do they? If you have, you know, an agent, a manager, an entertainment lawyer, which is like not uncommon, that's 25% off the top pre-tax. So now you're 40 grand for whatever, eight weeks of work becomes... Uh, we're talking that's 30 grand pre-tax, right? It's not like when you are between jobs, you're not working. You're job searching hard. You're writing new staffing samples. More studios than ever are just dumping stuff that they've made for the tax write-off. And so if your first credit is something that never airs, then you don't get the benefit on your resume, really, of having worked on that, right? It's not on your IMDb page. It's not something people see and go, oh, shoot, we got to hire her. We got to hire them. You go, you're just like really probing in the dark for this next thing. And so it is, you know, again, it's the weekly rates seem enticing, but that you're what the studios are proposing are fewer weeks, lower money, fewer chances for advancement. And they're really trying to keep people in that place of like just scraping by for as long as possible. Yeah, I actually heard something about a movie that some actors made a while back to try and keep their health insurance coverage. They just made it just to keep their health insurance coverage. 
It was very recent. Yeah, that's my friend Ellen and my friend Drew, who's her husband, did a, a short film called Ellen Needs Insurance. It's really good, but it's about an actor who needs to get like one last job. It was like $1,700 or something was the difference between um, having healthcare for her family for the next year or not. And that is like, that's so real and you're so at the whims of the industry. And they really found a creative solution that was able to put Ellen and Drew over the top and then other people, they got other actors and they made it a SAG production and it they raised funds for it so that people could have health insurance. And it was so creative and the, the result was really wonderful. People, I think, can just watch it online now. I think it's available widely. It's played in festivals and stuff. It's like such a a wonderful creative solution, but it's one of those, again, it's one of those American stories that you're like, oh, that's heartwarming, except the flip side of it is if they didn't do this, they would just like not be able to go to the doctor. So it's like a pretty bleak situation that got them into this into this position, but they, they were really ingenious. And it's something I think about all the time. Like I'm a pretty healthy person, like considering, like don't, don't have a lot of extenuating circumstances, pre-existing conditions. My wife is diabetic and she's on my health insurance because she was so frazzled because when she would leave a job, she would have to like either pay into Cobra or get another job immediately so that she could afford all the medication she needs and the, the doctor's visits. And so it's been like a godsend to have her on my health insurance steadily since we've been married for the last six years. And she just doesn't have to worry about, you know, because I can go job to job and the health insurance is portable. It's the same on every Writers Guild job uh, in the uh, under the the MBA contract. And, and that's like incredible. That's such a hard fought union win that I'm so grateful to writers of the past for that like my wife doesn't have to stress out about like, oh, if she's working at a job that she doesn't like, she doesn't have to stay there for like another year until she finds something different just so that she can have insulin. Stay tuned for more High Low with Emrata. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. What's the energy on the picket line? Yeah, so I think the New York and LA vibes on the picket line are very different. In LA, there's just so much more of the industry. And so there's just bigger numbers and it's a more visually impressive showing of solidarity just because there's so many more people working out there. But it, And the energy, I think, is a little bit more mellow. It's a little bit more like uh, encouraging cars passing by to honk, a little more like just kind of marching quietly and and chatting with the people around you and like you know maybe you're there with a friend or maybe you meet someone new who's protesting or you know who's marching and it's like a a, a more low key vibe in New York there's a lot of it because the numbers are smaller and the locations are a little more targeted there's a little more like chanting like union slogans and chants and 
it started out very production focused, right? Where we would go to places where shows were still in production without their writers. And so we considered that a struck show. And so we would pick it there. And there was like an incredible amount of support from the Teamsters, who I have to make sure that I never forget to mention because they're the Teamsters, and the IATSE crews that that in many cases chose not to cross the picket lines and would lose work. And so like because of it, you know, they they would lose out on that day's work. And so we it's so appreciated that level of solidarity and that so it was it would be smaller numbers kind of targeted at places where productions were happening. And now with SAG AFTRA out as well, there's a lot more combined picket uh, action. And so it's the numbers are bigger. There's a little bit more energy and enthusiasm just because there's one, so many more people the SAG after is such a bigger union than the WGA as well. And there's a lot more what I will like affectionately call theater kid energy out on the lines. So there's people that are like really sk- great voices and very like enthusiastic to like lead the the chance. And I've kind of gotten brought into that on the WGA side because I'm like a um, maniacal extrovert. And so I think there are a lot more writers that are like, no, this is not what I got into this for, the yelling. And I'm like, all right, here we go. Like, I'm a, I wouldn't say I seek attention, but I would say I am comfortable with it more than maybe some other writers. So it's been really interesting. And, and again, I really want to stress, like, seeing people coming out from crews, from, uh, you know, Teamsters unions, from the flight attendants, uh, Starbucks union workers, Amazon union workers, it, that is, like, to me, really bolstering for for the spirit because it's like oh damn these other working people get we're doing the same thing we're we're in the same fight and like we've really tried to be be there for them too like i know lots of people in la have uh picketed with hotel workers who have been striking we sent a contingent out to to laguardia airport for i think it was apfa association of professional flight attendants who that's American Airlines Union, and they had just authorized a strike, or they were announcing their strike authorization, which was 99.4% in favor of with 93% participation. So, like, you really see that people are, like, sick of taking shit, right? People, I think, this isn't necessarily us, but you talk about UPS drivers, you talk about auto workers, you talk about flight attendants, people who are, like, essential workers who are asked to make all these sacrifices through especially the early pandemic pre-vaccine and now the way that their employers are like oh yeah 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 it's not still not your turn to like get what you're asking for for this and people are they're fucking sick of it to like eat shit on these deals anymore and they want to get paid what they deserve for the work they do and it's not too much to ask you mentioned something um about different theme days and costumes can you tell me more about what that's like Totally. So we had a game show picket where uh, Mikey Day from SNL, who also hosts Is This Cake, did like a strike-themed game show. I'm doing – by the time this runs, this will have happened, but I'm hosting – the award show themed picket that's that's happening Monday when the Emmys would have been, but it got pushed obviously because people can't participate. Um, and so, and in LA, there's a little bit more like Taylor Swift karaoke day, and we've done I think a little less of that in the East for whatever reason, but. Yeah, it's just to like keep morale high, get people feeling really invested. There's also like there was the black writers pick a day and there's an immigrant writers pick a day. So just to get people really feeling like they 
are in the spotlight and their voices are heard and their concerns are important and valid and their voices are important to, to the mosaic of this guild. I've actually seen that there are some celebrities who've sent food trucks and food to the picket lines. And there was like this thing I saw on TikTok, different musical artists popping up and performing for better or worse. <laughs> Can you speak to some of the solidarity and generosity you've seen in the community? Totally. On the West, I think because there are more like movie stars that live out there, it's, you know, Drew Carey has paid for anyone in the Writers Guild who goes to lunch at two separate restaurants. One of them is like Bob's Big Boy or something. I I forget what the restaurants are, but there's two diners that Drew Carey will just pay for you to have one meal a day if you're in the Guild. And that's unbelievable. I mean, tens of thousands of dollars, right, that he's spent to to feed union members. And then in the East, I, I don't want to, like, leave people out. I know the late night hosts have sent, like, ice cream trucks, and Pete Davidson came through with pizza. I got some Van Leeuwen ice cream, which is, which is pretty good. That's, like, some high-end stuff that the late night uh, – Writers sent the DGA sent the Directors Guild sent a taco truck of like King David breakfast tacos. Lin Manuel Miranda has come through. I know. I think I think Questlove has hooked up people in the East. So it's been it's been really nice. It's been really heartening. And then there's the big entertainment community fund effort and TUSC, the Union Solidarity Collective. I think that's been trying to raise funds to like help crew members pay healthcare costs that that have popped up during this time and help hair and makeup caterers people who work in the industry can apply for these grants and help pay their bills so i think the the generosity has really been impressive and and wonderful and like hopefully it has taken some of the sting out of how hard this has been on people and how hard the studios have made it on people frankly there's been some really impressive show, uh, showings of solidarity. Snoop canceled shows. I mean, Drew Barrymore, who is back in production currently as we're talking, which is a bummer, didn't host the MTV uh, Movie and TV Awards in the in the spring as a show of solidarity. And it's like all that stuff is so meaningful, you know. Like I think there's this complaint, and I'm not the first person to to voice this rebuttal, but there's this complaint that like, oh, these are the the millionaires, right? That you're saying like, that's that's who the big public faces are. But when you see Snoop Dogg like canceling shows, he's not doing it for Snoop Dogg or Drew Barrymore didn't walk off for Drew Barrymore. This is for, as a show of support for the people that are not making that kind of money, right? It's, it's to force the hand of the studios to treat everyone else fairly. And I think that is about as worthwhile a use of that kind of like clout and financial stability as as can be asked. There are people that you wish would show up a little more and then there's the people that have been showing up and I think the real point is to like take comfort and solace and encouragement from the people that are doing the work and uh and and because they're out there, right? It, it like you could you could lose your mind thinking about like all the things people could be doing and and you want to bring everybody in. Uh, on that, right? Like you want to like encourage everybody to support as much as possible, but like it is, it is meaningful to see those shows of support. And I think sometimes like, you know, when someone like Bill Maher pops off like that, it's easy to see that as like, oh, dissension in the ranks. But that's only because like his comments are so outside the norm and outside the the broader feeling. Uh, they're real outliers. How far do you think that solidarity extends I think what's important to think about and and to to for me to express is that there were like tons of SAG after members out on the picket lines for 
two and a half months before SAG-AFTRA called the strike. And where we've gone to the studios in any agreement for our contract and asked for the right to support other unions in their strikes. That's like one of our the proposals is that we we can offer this kind of solidarity continually to the to SAG-AFTRA and other unions. So like it is really something that I think how stubborn and cruel the studio negotiations have been on that side have only increased the level of togetherness and like the we're all in this together across across our industry across lots of industries right because i think it's really this feeling of like oh fuck them though right like it's it's the same bosses you know like it's it's the same amazon that warehouse workers are are organizing to to protect themselves from you know so like i think there's really this bubbling emerging feeling of solidarity that i don't think will go away when whoever gets a contract first gets that that contract i don't think we're in it to be okay we're racing you to get a deal and then peace we like work side by side we've been picketing side by side and, and that that solidarity has been incredibly meaningful and it feels it's like the realest thing there is right of like going out in the sun and protesting with someone day after day. And you're like, Oh, this person is really with me, especially with the, the SAG members before their strike was called that were just like, yeah, we're in it for you. Talk to me about the different negotiating tactics each side has been using. It seems like the AMPTP has been trying to float various proposals and talking points to the press to try and influence public sentiment. How do you think that strategy has been working? The studios, I think, at this point are on either their third or fourth crisis PR firm. So, like, clearly they have not been winning that battle, right, of public opinion with their communication strategy. They went into a meeting with our negotiating committee, the Writers Guild East and West Joint Negotiating Committee. And then when we said, have you considered our counter proposal yet? They said, no. Our proposal that we gave you before that is what's on the table. And then they leaked the terms of that to the press, despite the, a mutually agreed upon media blackout of like what was happening in the room. So it really feels like they are trying to create dissent by by any means. They're trying to like make themselves look reasonable. But again, they don't have a reasonable case. That to me is like what it boils down to. We're going, hey, we'd like you to slice off this little piece of the pie so we can keep working and keep doing the stuff that we love to do, that people enjoy to to consume and appreciate. And they're going like, no, we're, we're going to say you're being unreasonable. It's like, what's unreasonable about that? They're not giving us items that that are not reasonable they're just saying like no we want everything and that to me is like the core of this whole thing they're going to the the press and going like this is what they turned down and you know well first of all the, it, it has been alleged that that might even be a, a national labor review board uh violation to try to negotiate with membership instead of the negotiating committee right like to appeal to the the rank and file from the other side i don't know if that's the case but it certainly is like sneaky and underhanded. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think they're losing the PR battle so badly because they don't have a leg to stand on, frankly. I mean, the whole situation is so frustrating, right? Like it is a complete lack of good faith negotiation on the other side. It is, you talk about being unreasonable, right? They're, they're going, we would rather not do for many of these companies, the only thing we do, right? We would not, we'd rather not produce our only product 
then give you a fair deal. And obviously for companies like Amazon and Apple, they have other revenue streams as well. And this is like peanuts to them financially. And it's just about the point of wanting to crush organized labor is what it feels like. But like Warner Brothers Discovery, Netflix, certainly, this is what you do. And to go like, yeah, we're going to go four plus months without creating the only things that we have to offer the public because they they don't at the highest level right this is not everyone who works at these places because there's lots of like wonderful people that that are collaborative with artists that that are necessary to getting all this work and like vital to the process of getting this work out into the world but when you're talking about like the highest ceo c-suite level these are people that think that their job is to produce shareholder value not to create anything that is of value to the public and it's like it's gross. They should be embarrassed to have their, you know, to, to like show their asses in this way, to be like, oh, we don't care about doing the thing that we exist to do because secretly we exist to make stock go up. That's all we that's all we want. I know in addition to your writing and your comedy that you're also known for giving pep talks. Do you have a pep talk for an out of work writer? Maybe they're in the guild or maybe they're hoping to be one day that's just maybe feeling deflated and disillusioned by everything that's going on. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. I think this strike is really an act of hope, right? It's it's showing that we believe in the future, that we believe things can get better and, and should and will get better. And this is not just for the people out on lines now. This is for the next generations of writers to keep this career viable for, for people and to like expand who is able to work in this industry. And I think that standing side by side with so many different kinds of people really shows the the strength of our union, the respect from other people across the public, despite some like blue checkmark losers on uh, on Twitter, aka X, that are like, eh, they don't make anything good anyway. Like, shut up, losers. I think that it is like overwhelming the support that we have from the public. And the only thing standing in our way of a fair contract is the like diabolical levels of greed from the top levels of these companies and, and the, these CEOs. And so like, we're doing this for you. We're in this together. We're we're going to win this. And I, I think that it's like really moving in a really wonderful way to see how people have come together for this fight. And so while the there is a very real financial pain that a lot of people are feeling, a very real frustration that a lot of people are feeling, like we're taking on some of the biggest companies, the biggest corporations in the world. And so it's been hard, but like we're in the right and we're not going to give up. All right. Thank you so much for coming on, Josh. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. We will be back at it on Tuesday with a brand new episode. I thought it was fascinating hearing that story he shared about the movie Ellen Needs Insurance. It's crazy. Um, I feel like hearing from Josh just really drove home how insane and unfair these big studios are and the powers that be are being with uh, their tactics. It just feels like bullying and it's terrible that they're essentially trying to strong arm struggling writers and actors. There was actually a story at Universal Studios in California where they cut down some trees that were providing shade to protesters, and um, they just got a small slap on the wrist fine from the city as a result. But those kind of stories, I think, are important to to hear. 
I want to hear your thoughts on the strikes and about the power dynamics of labor in general, um, particularly with social media and the way media has been used in these particular strikes. Um, have you ever organized in your workplace? And do you think there are other or better tactics to utilize for protesters besides work stoppages? I have to say, I think that uh, work stoppages seem to be quite effective, at least in this case. Listen, I do a third episode every week, talk back, take your voice notes and messages and play them on the show and answer your questions and respond to your comments and personal stories. You can leave your voice notes through hilo.fm or by calling our Hilo hotline at 42HILO4. If you're listening on Spotify, you can weigh in on the Q&A feature. You can also use the hashtag HILO. Also go to hilo.fm to send your thoughts on what we've talked about today. And don't forget, please let me know your name, preferred pronouns, and where you're from so I can respect your preferences, not sound like an asshole if I talk about your comment or voice note on the air. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or at hilo.fm to listen every Thursday. And don't forget to join in the conversation on social media using the hashtag HILO. Hilo with Emrata is a Sony Music Entertainment and Bitch Era Media production. Our executive producers are me, Emily Radikowski, Matt Raz, and Sarita Wesley. Our showrunner is Matt Raz. Our associate producer is Rachel Choder. Today's episode was engineered by Samantha Gatsik with original music by The Crystal Pharaoh.